Hello and welcome to Decrypted, a cybersecurity podcast for the everyday American. I'm your friendly neighborhood cyberman, Jacob Asida, and I'm joined by my cyber partner in crime, Dayton Williams. It's great to be here, Jacob. It's great to be here. Software is so much easier to attack than hardware of any kind. The complexity and the monitoring and the variability in that software is much more dynamic. So more often than not, when most people think of cybersecurity, they think of the ones and zeros that make up software. In our past episodes, we here at Decrypted have focused on a great deal of time for software-centric cybersecurity. Try saying that five times fast. <laughs> so, you know, talking about hacking, counterintelligence, traffic over networks, you know, things like that. But computers are not just lines of code in a vacuum. Under the hood of our everyday laptops is a vast and complex system of not only software, but also hardware that it runs on. That's right. And to refresh, hardware is any physical component of a computer, like the motherboard or the processors. Anything that your average toddler can spill a glass of milk onto is hardware. Software, however, is not a physical piece of equipment, but rather a set of instructions that make things happen. With that being said, we will be releasing a special series of episodes that will attempt to contextualize cybersecurity in a different way. This will start by zooming into the complex design of computer architecture and then zooming out to understand the global supply chain that makes the manufacturing of computers affordable to the consumer. Microprocessor to macroeconomics. That's a good title of this whole bit. Yes. In the U.S., I'd say that there's a growing security concern over their vulnerabilities in the supply chain. You know, for example, the introduction of secret microchips onto hardware or even the pressure of a government to install backdoors into software or hardware products has been a real concern of late. In order to really understand what is at stake and the pieces of the supply chain, we need to build up our understanding of hardware first. Right. And before we turn it over to our expert guest, a quick disclaimer that the opinions expressed by our guest are his own and are not representative of Intel. So with that, we turn it over to our interview. All right. We are here with Alberto Martinez. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Well, let's see. Where to start? Alberto uh, Martinez, my current job, I'm an Intel fellow. I work for Intel Corporation. I'm the chief architect for an embedded IP and chipset group. I've been dealing with the corporation for about 25 years this July. Uh, before that, um, I worked for Epson Corporation designing computers. Um, so basically, m my job over the last uh, 30 years has been computer architecture. Mm. Uh, especially my, my focus has been on the area of many. Um, I like target-rich environments. I've been working on audio, speech recognition, security, cybersecurity, um, systems IO. I was one of the architects in the USB subsystem. The latest generation we ship, USB 3, was my, uh, my work. And um, a lot of the security engine infrastructure you find in a PC, I have worked on it at some point or another. Mm -hmm. right? um, I'm the author of the architecture that was designed to update the infrastructure in a PC in case of a... Uh, uh, vulnerability is detected uh, for our manageability security engine that is embedded in the computers. So th that's about it. A lot of technical work and a lot of technical jargon. <laughs> <coughs> well, providing updates and you know providing a secure means of like dealing with any like malware that's on your PC, I'd, I'd like to follow up with that. So in providing security and routine maintenance, what sort of processes exist to verify the integrity of like a patch? Um, 
and do you feel this concern that the update mechanisms themselves would ever be targeted? Well, uh, you have several questions there, so let me let me break it down so I can answer in a reasonable fashion. So you're asking what um, um, assurances can be provided of the effectiveness of a patch in terms of the content. Yes. Right. So that, that that's your first question. A, every patch is a piece of software, right? It's a very low-level integrated software, uh, typically delivered. There are, you know, in, in, in current computer system, there are many microcontrollers. Uh, each one of them have one or many functions, depending on where they live. Um, there are power management controllers, there are security manageability controllers, there are audio voice and speech controllers, there are imaging controllers. There are all sorts of subsystems beside your CPU, and you will be amazed of the capacity of these microcontrollers. Uh, the voice processing microcontroller in a modern PC is the model equivalent of a 2000 Intel processor, mm. right? The year 2000, when we broke the one gigahertz barrier, mm. um, the sound barrier, <laughs> uh, the, the one gigahertz barrier. Uh, at, at that time, uh, now today in 2019, microcontrollers run at one gigahertz, or, right. or, uh, and, the, and the speed of processing depends on the purpose. Right. So we, don't, we can run it at one gigahertz, but we might run it at 100 megahertz for power saving purposes. So these are complex, very complex systems, and every complex system have a, um, the vulnerability is linearly related to the complexity of the system. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> the more complex a system is, the probability of vulnerability being found is higher. So there are things that you do. So first of all, you try to um, minimize the level of complexity. So, for example, uh, the operating system in a modern P uh, PC is a very complex software, multi-layer abstraction uh, a environment. It's very hard to protect. Mm. So you have to break it in pieces. In, the, in a microcontroller, you create a very structured, simple, linear environment. And you try to the space of that linear environment to be small. Right? The smaller the code, the easier it is to protect. So rule number one, make this attack surface Mm. the smaller than you can. Second, um, of course, you had all the techniques to review the code, and fortunately enough, um, modern code, uh, there are many tools that we can use to verify stack overflow using uh, what we call, uh, and the stack overflow typically is that you run, um, you run out of the memory space for where you store your partial variables, and, and when you do that on purpose, you, that can lead to attack. So, Stackable flows are protected with something we call canaries and, and so on and so forth. So there are techniques that we apply to protect the code. So for a microcontroller, is its kind of arrangement static or is it dynamic? Can it be updated over time? No, they are all dynamic. They are dynamic. Uh, there are very few microcontrollers that are static. All of them has um, uh, a static code. Mm -hmm. um, we call it ROM, uh, yeah. read-only memory. Uh, there is... Um, for all intent and purpose, hardware. Mm -hmm. There's no software in the sense that it's code, but it's encoded in the hardware with transistors. Um, and that way, that code, which is the, the basic code of the computer, is very small. Mm -hmm. Attack surface is very small. It's not replaceable, mm -hmm. right? And it's where the fundamental protection securities are located. Uh, cryptographic keys, uh, uh, bases are structured that way, so you uh, cannot be... Um, attack, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, only you use uh, IOMIL, which is fundamentally a, 
uh, electron buster, right? Yeah. No one had that equipment that said big corporation with a lot of money or corporate level or, or, or national level funding, right. right, can attack something like that. So um, there are dynamic code or patches that you were, right, yeah. you were talking about. Uh, you need those because no, no, no functions will always perfect or clean. You know, the, 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 the level of complexity, you can spend all the life expectancy of a human being testing and you will uh, never account for You everything. will never account <laughs> for everything. So you have to have the capability to recover. So the philosophy goes this way. You work on prevention. That's the first thing that you try to do, which is all the things that I was mentioning before, introducing the attack surface, monitoring the code, actually make the code open to the extent that third parties uh, uh, can mm -hmm. actually review the code. Um, second, you do for detection. You use tools and methods that if there is an attack in the, in the, in the code, you can detect it and take action. Right? Like it, it, uh, for example, if we detect a code in one of our security firmware, we shut down the computer. Mm -hmm. uh, you, uh, and it's very rare, but it, it could happen that if uh, someone or something is attacking your machine, your machine will shut down. Of course, you're going to call Microsoft or Dell or Intel. Mm -hmm. You're going to call someone when my computer shut down, and, it, and finding the reason will be difficult, but the, the, given that the computer shut down, the code is gone. Right. right? And, and the, third, mm, the third one is recovery. Once you detect something, you take action to recover, and one of the steps is the patch. Mm -hmm. Therefore, you go into this loop cycle. It's a, it's, Imagine it's an arm race, right, where private companies and the tech industry is trying to defend against this uh, multitude of attackers of all kinds. There are the sport hacker mm -hmm. that does it because it's fun. Right. There is the, the researcher that does it for credibility and, and education and uh -huh. all those reasons I mentioned. And there is a professional hacker, right, that does it for money. Uh. or political interest. Uh, those are the hardest. Mm. And, uh, those advanced persistent threats, the APTs. Yeah, they, 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 those are persistent, and is you had a professional, well-funded hacker, right, that is had capabilities to use an ion meal or x-rays or, or... All the best toys. All the best <laughs> toys, right? They had a lab there in the mine. Um, and, then and, and then you are in a, in, a, in, a, in a very difficult situation. Right. So the, the, but is you, if a computer is with you, those types of attacks are very difficult. Mm -hmm. It's when you lose access to your computer and you let your computer at your site is when, that's the reason all security agencies forbid, you know, leave, your computer, yeah. right. leave your computer right. out there, right? Mm -hmm. um, or uh, in our case, even for Intel, we, we don't leave our computers in our cars. You know, we take our computers with us. Right. With us. Right. I travel with my computer. My computer is with me today oh, and, and, <laughs> uh, and on vacation, right? I just don't leave it anywhere. Right. Well, Sorry. going off of, of access, you mentioned something a little bit uh, about like proprietary information and like access to like code mm -hmm. and versus opening it up to the third party. Mm -hmm. And now I don't think we've talked much about like bug bounties or making things open source. Could you speak a little bit on well, like different the risks and benefits of what that means? Yeah, you use the term open source and the open okay. source is a minefield. Okay. In the sense <laughs> that there are many ways that people define open source. Okay. Um, I didn't mean open source. Oh, okay. uh, a open source means everybody can edit modify yeah. and mm -hmm. edit the code. Mm -hmm. What we do is we publish the code. And we publish the code to people that can review it, right? that are interested in reviewing it, right. and, and in certain conditions. Right? Security agencies can review the code. They mm -hmm. don't have access to modify it, but they can review it. Okay. Mm -hmm. And they give us feedback, for example. 
Right. Like, and are these uh, contracted companies or they are contracted companies? Or? For example, there may be a, a corporation, I don't know, pick your favorite large bank, mm -hmm. right? That said, hey, I, I trust you, Intel, but we want to verify. Of course. Right? And I want to review the code and I'm going to hire the third party company to review the code just to make sure that you didn't left intentionally or accidentally any backdoor that can be used to to get into our systems. Mm -hmm. And we say, yes, why not? Well, here's yeah. the code. Sign here, sign this license. Right. Right? Um, and um, yeah, here it is. And we put it in a chamber, so to speak, and mm -hmm. people uh, go review it and they give us feedback. Sometimes they find interesting things. Uh, more often than not, they don't find much. Mm -hmm. Right? Think they always have comments. Right? right? Mm -hmm. uh, for us, it's important that they find something that we didn't. The sooner we find something, um, uh, the better we be. Mm. We, we can take corrective actions and so on and so forth. But not only Intel, right? That that applies to any, any you know, phone or mm -hmm. or mainframes or produced by anybody, mm -hmm. right. right? You you want to find those issues as soon as you can, so corrective action can be taken. Mm. So I had a question to follow up. Do you see hardware security concerns as something that's rising in the future? Specifically, I'm thinking about like supply chain issues that can go into you know the building parts of a PC. Do you think that there's any risk of any baked-in vulnerabilities in the in the future? Uh, supply chains, meaning, uh, I think you're referring to someone modifying the actual hardware. Yes, more to introduce um, perhaps a man-in-the-middle attack in some interface of us. You know, uh, from the point of view of uh, managing the supply chain, I see so far very little evidence that that, that is a very diff um, a concern that, that is being exposed. Supply chains are very well monitored, mm. right? And it's very hard to introduce a change in the hardware that is non-visible. Right. Right. Even uh, if it's produced abroad or, you know, in another well, country's facilities. Well, it is produced abroad. Or, right. uh, they, mm, most computers are produced abroad. Right. Uh, but the, the, what you will see is that uh, the design had a schematics. The schematics are verified. And then you're going to look at the schematic behavior, and people will verify it against the design just to make sure that all parts and components are supplied correctly. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, is it possible that someone... You know, goes and attack the supply chain. I, I, well, I guess to venture that is possible, um, but as anything, you know, mm -hmm. giving right. enough time and intention, uh, you know, the three T's: time, talent, and treasure. Uh -huh. uh, if you apply enough time, talent, and treasure, everything is possible. I see. Uh, as far as I know, personally, I haven't seen any supply chain um, attack. I think the <laughs> just put it this way: software. Is so much easier to attack right. than hardware mm -hmm. of any kind. Right. And why is that? Uh, well, the complexity and the monitoring and the variability in that mm -hmm. software is much more dynamic. I see. Right? And it is replaceable, as we said before. Um, in software vulnerabilities, I say in the operating system stack or in, in some other places, it's a lot easier and there's a lot more people working on it, mm -hmm. right? So it's, uh, imagine it's a lot more complexity, and at least at this level, like hardware can be, is very complex. You're talking building a transistor, but to attack a transistor is, is still beyond the capacity of most everybody. So software is a lot easier. So where are you, if you're an attacker and, uh, of any kind, where are you going to spend your time? Mm. You're going to spend your time 
It's like a, a someone is going to rob a neighborhood. You're going to go to the point of you're least resistance. You're going to point that is least resistance. You're going to yeah. you're going to find the one that ha doesn't have an alarm, that the window is open, or the door is open, when it doesn't have a dog. Right. Right. Uh, so software is less is, is a little more prone to 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 that kind of things because it's much more dynamic. That's the reason. Also, the expenditure in protecting software is a lot higher. Mm -hmm. Right. Given that the complexity is that the way. Attacking hardware is, is a difficult proposition. However, as I said before, if someone were to design a hardware, a motherboard, and purposely design that motherboard with a vulnerability such that they can detect traffic in the memory space or in the CPU space or anywhere, right? And they do it in a undercover function, that is very expensive. Hmm. And that requires extremely high funding. Right, you had to hide it in the in the supply chain. You had to be able to to uh, manipulate uh, your vendors. You had to hide it protections of the security agencies that are going to review it. You know, the, you, you, it's it's very complex. Mm. Um, so I think people will go in, in different directions, uh, but that's my just my opinion. I don't know. I don't have specific data in one way or the other. I'm going to ask a question that you may or may not be able to answer. It's okay if you can't. Um, <laughs> it's kind of jumping on that. So there's a lot of concern over sort of the network equipment from Huawei. Do you think that I, those are reasonable I, concerns? I, I thought you were going that way. Yeah, <laughs> I kinda, I, it's kind of inevitable that we go that way. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing, Jacob. But uh, <laughs> if that's all right, if you can answer that, that's all right. If not, don't well, worry. Well, all truly, it's not that I won't or, or I, I just don't have enough information. That's mm, fair. Right. Yeah, I, I, I don't have a personal opinion you, you were alluding to that when you were asking me all the previous questions. Right. Uh, and I think it's very difficult to do. Uh, it's not impossible to do, but I don't have an opinion whether they are or they are not. And, and that's fair. I, uh, that's that's yeah. a fair enough uh, opinion yeah. on the matter. You know? <laughs> um, I, you... I'm not educated on the facts. <laughs> of course, of course. Um, yeah, so I think you've talked a lot about your experience in, in working in these, these networks and, and all this incredible feats of engineering. Um, how, how much has changed, like, how fast is network architecture and, and a lot of this engineering changing? How much has it changed in the past five years? And where do you see it moving in the next five years, in the next <clears throat> 10 years? You're, you're asking a question that is not only relevant to, to networks. Um, it had, it's, it's, it's a question of technology in general. It is, yeah. Um, and the question of technology is, is profound. Mm. It's a profound question. And uh, I don't know if your listeners, uh, how to put it, to translate it in a, in a matter that, that is comprehensible is difficult. So um, I, I, I saw an example. I, I want to give attribute to, to the person that wrote this, but I can at the moment. I cannot remember um, the attribute. But they were talking about a unit of, of, of that. And they referred to the unit of that as how far back in the past can you bring a person to the future? Mm such that the change in the environment is so large that that person cannot cope anymore. Mm -hmm. mm. So let's say, for okay. example, you take someone 300 years back in the past and you take it today and to 2019. And in 2019, that person will have seen magic. Mm. By 300 years on technological evolution, it really looked like magic. You're using magic wand to communicate, right. to open doors. You talk to devices in the world, right? Cars can move autonomously. Airplanes fly all over the place. We have reached the moon. 
you know, on the outer planets. It's incredible. A person 300 years back, you, you bring it now, they will have a very hard time coping. They might die just mm -hmm. by the disruption on their standard way of thinking. Right. So let's say that it's at 300 years, is that unit of death, right? You move I'm people serious. 300 years in the future, they will pass out. <laughs> you move from, I don't know, 300 years in the past, right? In the, I don't know, 1700, and you move 300 years in the past. That person in the, I don't know, 1400s, right? You move it to the 1700s, it won't die. The mm. changes hasn't been Second, big enough, yeah. right? right? Okay, you see horses and some technological advancement, steam, probably the Bronze Age, all the things have passed, you know, but it won't pass. It can cope. Mm -hmm. Things are similar enough. In order to forget to that, that unit of death, you have to move a thousand years in the past. Right. Yeah, hunting and gathering, living in caves, and move it to 1700. The chain will be so large, the person wouldn't be able to cope. So now you had a, a, a 10x change. Mm -hmm. The next step is you, that 1,000 years in the past, you had to move 10,000 years mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to cause that unit of death. So you see, that is an exponential equation, mm. right? Every time you move in the past, it takes longer to find a differential. So we just move 300 years and we cause ourselves to choke on it. Uh -huh. Divide that by 10, it's 30. Right. So think about 30 years in the future, we are not going to recognize our planet. I mean, right? it, it's like the standard adage about, you know, your phone has more computing power than uh, the, the, t the technology that was on, like, the first rocket that went to the moon. Oh. That's not even comparable. The first rocket that went to the moon have uh, uh, my watch, my mechanical watch, probably have my more computing than, mm. than the lunar lander. Right. Uh, so think about it. How do you cope with a death unit of change? Mm -hmm. So you take someone that, that grew in this epoch in 2019 and suddenly move it 30 or 50 years in the future, they're not going to understand mm. what's going on. Right, right. Right? That's the reason why our grandparents have so much hard time coping with life today. Mm -hmm. I'm having time coping with the life of my daughters in the time that they communicate and they leave. Right? Imagine if you move someone right. 50 years in the future. Right. And you're an expert in computer engineering. And, I, <laughs> and that is my life. Right, right. Right? I understand how it works. Uh -huh. I don't understand the social implications, all I of them. Right? It's different than I understand how the technology work right. and the other one how it's been used yes. and 50 years in the future you and i move into the future right now mm. we're not going to understand it so when you talk about how networks are changes right. apply artificial intelligence but not only of speaking to device artificial intelligence apply to everything and just breakthrough for quantum computing combined right the capacity to compute at those levels and then you're going to find the rate of change so large Hmm. That is difficult to cope. That's the reason we had to stop thinking linearly. We have to think exponential. Mm. So when we think about quantum computing, we're increasing the cryptographic key sizes in our computers for 10 years now. And we're making it large enough that a quantum computing cannot break it. Well, well, since 10 years ago, we've been thinking exponentially. Say, a quantum computer will come up. I don't know how. I don't know when. But when it come out, this computer is going to break. Mm. I it's going it's to redefine kind of how we think about computer architecture. That's you know, right. Been, I mean, there's been advances. You know, we we moved to multiple um, to, to multiple cores and processors, but the fundamental architecture has kind of remained the same. Would you say? And and we're kind of on a precipice of like a fundamental change of the architecture. It is true. That's very fundamental. Um, 
the, and, the and architecture sure had evolved. Uh, obviously, the architecture had evolved, but it had evolved in a linear fashion. Right. Mm. Uh, now the architecture is going to evolve in an exponential fashion. Mm -hmm. And the way we think about computer architecture is changing. Uh, as I said, I was commenting to you before we started the interview, we had um, AI processors, dedicated AI processors in the computers starting this year, right? Well, we have some before, but no one was using it. But uh, we start using in those now. Um, they are specifically designed with a purpose a very large multi-threading, heavy mathematical compute uh, engines that, that are dedicated to a small integer, so which is the fundamental artificial intelligence as we understand it today. I know how we'll use it. Mm -hmm. I don't know how other people will use it. Mm -hmm. It's like a, your CPU. We, we put it there. We know how to use it. People have used it in ways that we had never dreamed of, right? Right. right. Uh, exactly the same is going to happen, and the architecture is changing dramatically. It's no longer the CPU and the GPU. It's CPU, GPUs, AUs. So it's a scalar, vector, matrix, and a spatial computing. Think about those four terms, mm. right? So it's your scalar CPU, your vector like your GPU, your matrix as artificial intelligence, and spatial as FPGAs, programmable FPGAs. So even the hardware will be programmable eventually. Mm. So now you're going to get to a point that all those are running in parallel at very fast pace. It's almost like you have many computers within your computer in a way. Well, we already had that. Well, <laughs> but, I mean, like to like almost the standards of like a regular computer today. I mean. Yeah, I, I think that... E e I like the bio, you know, the biomorphics analogy. Your brain is a very vast computer, but within that very vast computer array, there are locations that are dedicated to certain functions. Mm -hmm. They behave differently, and within your body and your and, and your neurological system, you have dedicated processors. We, we don't see them because mm. we don't understand them as well. But there are dedicated functions in your body that are collectors and preprocessors. That, that change the signal in a way that your brain can understand it. So similar with, uh, with, with advanced computer today, there are processor, preprocessor, adapters. Uh, they're all, all sorts of things, right? And their computer architecture is, again, advancing exponentially. So I have one last question. You know, as we're moving into like a change of computer architecture, do you think that there's going to be a movement towards like a greater focus on security during this kind of you know, transitional period? Oh, absolutely. Uh, a security is a fundamental aspect of uh, the computer architecture. In the past, security was um, uh, an adaptation of the architecture to do, to, to, to do security. Right now, everything we do, we start with a question, mm -hmm. right, of how this is going to be attacked. Right, right, right. The first question is... And that's a shift in the paradigm. Yeah, that's, that's, that's not what it used to be. The, the, no, it, it, it right. didn't used to be that. We didn't used to think that way. The, the, you know, the first virus was invented by accident. So <laughs> they, they, you, you start thinking in terms of now is the purpose. And there are two types of attackers, if you think about it, in, in, general, in generalities. is the attacker that is trying to get things on your, com your computer. So someone is after your data, mm -hmm. your information. And there is the attacker that is the actual user that is trying to get something from the computer for what he doesn't have rights to get, mm -hmm. right? Digital right management. And nowadays, we start with that question, right? We're designing this, how someone can break into 
Mm. And that's your first question. Say, well, I'm going to do this. Okay, I'm using this memory. Can this memory be accessed? Who can access this memory? When can this memory be accessed? Can this memory be modified in runtime? You know, whose software is running this? Where does software come from? Is it come from some other places or not? So th that means that, that, that your mind is already racing in those, and the software programmers are thinking that way, the hardware design is that way, mm -hmm. the motherboard design is that way, everybody's thinking that way. That being said, that's an army of people. Right. I mean, a modern project, a uh, 2020 project that I lead for Intel, I just at least 5,000 people working on it. Oh, it's amazing. So it's, it's, it's not a, yeah, it's not a small, it's not like oh, a small And, and, and what I tell the team, that, you know, you are brave enough to design a CD in a post-it stand. And that's what we do. We design CDs in, in a post-it stand. You design what? On the a city. Oh, a city. A oh, city. A city, you know, with all the electricity, right. transportation, you know, sewer system, everything, you know. And it takes three years. And we put it in the side of post this ten. It had billions of transistors. Yeah. Uh -huh. Right? And it had to all of them had to work. Mm -hmm. Right. In order for that computer to work. Right. And it has to endure. And it had to perdure. Yes. Well, thank you so much for joining us. You well, really it was my pleasure. I right. hope you we got something for your for your audience on this conversation. And um, it was a pleasure for me. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much. So I think Alberto was quite prolific over what he covered. You yeah, know, it, it yeah. was a, it's a fairly long interview. So apologies to people who like to tune in for only about like 20 minutes. No, no, we're not going to apologize. That was great. I had a great time. I had a great time, too. Despite all of that, this is still a fairly narrowly tailored uh, conversation. You know, we're really only talking about the development of hardware itself, mm -hmm. sort of like the idea, like the inception stage, rather than like the manufacturing process and how things, you know, end up being down the line. So I, I just think it's important that we kind of couch that conversation, that this is sort of like the beginning. This is the inception, the development, what goes into the thinking of the development of the hardware itself. Right. And I found that that development, um, that security is a concern within that development, even in the earliest part of the process. Mm -hmm. um, the idea that Alberto told us that Intel hands over some of their code to security agencies and like contractors to like really go through it and to make sure that it's safe before they ship it out. Like that's part of the production cycle um, and that it's an important part to make sure that what they create is safe for users. Mm -hmm. I would agree. And it seems like, you know, they're continuing to develop these sort of new catches in a way, I guess, to mm -hmm. even try to help cover some of the possible like software vulnerabilities. You know, it's, it's, it's a difficult industry to work in because, you know, security is for the most part always been an afterthought and hardware security is really just something that's coming to the forefront. He's already discussed, you know, sort of the development of uh, how processors have been thought about. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're about to be going under sort of a fundamental shift in how we view the computer architecture of computer itself. You know, some things like quantum computing are challenging our conventions of, of how uh, architecture is designed. And, mm -hmm. you know, we actually have a chance now to fundamentally reincorporate security at the ground level of computers in a way. Right. It's like a new slate to start from the beginning. It kind of is. Right. I mean, there's been a lot of concern, and um, Alberto actually mentioned a bit that they had been developing encryption that was solid enough to withstand uh, quantum computing. I'm not actually sure if that, you know, the veracity of that or how, how that will actually pan out. But, you know, that was a major concern is that uh, quantum computing, which I'm not going to describe because it's actually quite complex for our guests, but needless to say, it would allow processing at basically speeds and methods that would be able to beat most conventional encryptions that are being used today, like uh, AES, which is the Advanced Encryption Standard. Mm. So there was a lot of concern that we would have to rethink cryptography with the onset of quantum computing. 
So I think that the fact that they're kind of jumping ahead of the game and they're already thinking about these security concerns and the development of their new architecture is at least promising for us down the line. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of foresight. I know I originally when we were scripting this episode and talking about what we're going to put in it, I was going to have a whole history of hardware and computers. And because of that, I read a whole lot about the history of um, hardware and its development. And ultimately, they didn't make the cut. But now it is. So, haha. Um, one of the it. things one of the things I thought was really interesting was that from the 30s to the 40s to the 60s 70s you know security just was not a concern for computers no really um there was no inter- real inter- interconnectivity that we know of today it's not like people were trying to break into a room full of one computer and trying to glean something from it just that's just not the way information was stored and that's just not the paradigm of of the past pr- yeah. of the past yeah and so seeing trying to like the way the computers are de- designed and laying security on top of it it seems like it's it's a little bit more ad hoc of course it's very intentional now but i think with the onset of quantum you could totally restructure and have security in the forefront which is something that hasn't been the case before i think even going further about that i you know alberto sort of discussed with us how software in a way is sort of creeping into hardware itself like the mm-hmm. division between the two is somewhat blurred he discussed sort of use of possibly artificial intelligence in terms of processors, you know, even making it more efficient. And, you know, there's even discussion about, you know, we're looking years down the line into sort more, more sort of theoretical computing, the idea of like computers that work more like a human mind in the sense mm-hmm. that they're able to restructure themselves somewhat, which would kind of imply a sort of software to the hardware. Right. I wonder so, what security would look like for a human brain. I think it'd be incredibly complex. Right. I mean, I mean, this is this is sort of outside the scope of what we're talking about, but you know, it's it's an interesting thought to see, sort of that you know, hardware. We are definitely seeing the boundary between hardware mm. and software is slowly and surely being somewhat eroded. Um, so I think that's going to have some unique security questions that are going to be raised that unfortunately we're not equipped to talk about today. But I, I just want it to be something that our listeners are thinking about in the couple of years. You know. Mm-hmm, definitely, and I think that really reinforces Alberto's point about how much things are going to change in the next few years and how exponential that change is. Certainly. Yeah. It's, it's just staggering the, the pace of technological change. And it's, it's frankly feels like a Sisyphean task of trying to combat the, uh, the challenges of cybersecurity, frankly. Mm-hmm. Right. If you were dropped forward 300 years in the future, do you think you would die instantly? Uh, I would hope not. <laughs> I mean, probably panic, but yeah. you know, like I would hope that 300 years in the future, technology is so great that I wouldn't die. Right. right. But uh, who knows? Right. You know, that's it's so to me. 300 years in the future, I c- would struggle to be able to d- differentiate that from right. being magic at this point. You know? Yeah, of course, of course. You'd be the only person that isn't a floating brain in a jar. Yeah, like, I'd look feel at that very... guy. He's not a fr- he's not a floating brain in the jar. Unbelievable. <laughs> and he's still running Linux. Yeah. <laughs> something like that all right well thank you so much for joining us this week on decrypted we you know love having to hear back from our guests if you have feedback on the podcast we'd love to hear it if you have some interesting topics that you would like us to cover feel free to reach out to us at decrypted podcast on twitter we're always looking to engage with some some of our audience and we're hoping to continue this series on supply chain security in the weeks to come so tune in soon for the next episode of decrypted Decrypted is based upon work supported by the National Science Foundation under grant number 1433425 for the CyberCorp program at the George Washington University. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this material are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Science Foundation.